0: Well, hello, I'm John. And I'm Matt. And this is The New Now. Well, today we have the great honor of an old friend joining us for a conversation. Will Vanderhart is the co-director and co-founder of the Mind and Soul Foundation, as well as the author of several books all around the subject of mental health.
1: What was interesting was I can blame, if you like, my mental health challenge breakdown on that event. But I would say to you, that would be an easy thing to hide behind. The reality was I was on the edge before the London bombings. The London bombings were the straw that broke the camel's back.
2: So in our last episode, we looked at resilience and leadership, and we're going to carry on that theme of resilience as we delve a bit deeper into mental health and leadership, looking at loneliness, looking at worry, anxiety, competition, all of these things that are so relevant for every leader.
0: Matt and I have known Will for many years and we are looking forward to our conversation with him as we address these significant areas in the life of the Christian leader.
2: Will is the co-author of books like The Worry Book, The Perfection Book, and he is with us this morning as he speaks vulnerably, but also powerfully about issues and challenges that face every leader. So get ready, join in as we go on this journey together.
0: Well, welcome to The New Now. It's great today to have our first guest of season two. Matt, we've got our old friend Will Vanderhart joining us today. Welcome, Will.
1: Great to see you guys. Thanks for the privilege of opening up season two. Yeah,
0: amazing. Great to have you uh, with us. We had lots of guests in season one, and we began season two with a couple of conversations between Matt and I. You are our first guest, and... um, it seems appropriate uh, to have you with us as an old friend. Will and I were at Whitcliffe together. We're in the same fellowship group together. And look how far he's come, at least. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's really, we've worked together in different contexts. It's a real privilege to have uh, Will with us. Uh, some of you tuning in might be aware that he is an author um, of several books, which I'm sure we'll refer to uh, later. But he's also a practitioner in the whole area of mental health within the context of church but of course outside as well
2: it's really great to have you will with us today and of course you set up the mind and soul foundation which is well known and well respected nationwide and beyond but also you've moved recently to our deaneries Hammersmith and Fulham it's great to have you in a neighboring parish now as an associate one of the churches here at St These in Parsons Green but also we're all part of this sort of same network so it's been great I think we bumped into each other in the swimming pool changing room at Charing Cross Hospital do you remember that a few years ago <laughs> yeah, that's right turn yeah, around just... and there you were
1: yeah sort yeah. of recovering I, I've had I had quite bad back injury so I was um, using the pool for yeah to kind of get my back back strong again which is yeah it was good yeah really good great to, it's great to be here with you guys we've got such a lot history together
2: thanks for being with us yeah this morning and just to say last week we were talking a bit about resilience in leadership and love to sort of explore that a little bit as we begin just thinking about resilience and leaders we talked about the image of not just a marathon but a triathlon something that james lawrence introduced us to and certainly we've had to have you know re- resilience for the long game i wonder how have you been getting on over these seven eight months
1: yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting conversation I've been having around resilience, particularly. You know, like many things in the church, I'm always desperately worried that they become sort of personal attributes. Um, and uh, the church is really good at spinning things in a way which makes you feel bad about about not having them. <laughs> and so, you know, we, we see a lot of I've been asked to talk a lot about resilience and 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 it's sort of it's a bit like the old conversations the church was having about depression, you know, a few years ago. You know, it's, it's you kind of need to get over it and pull up. pull yourself up by your bootstraps and try a bit harder and the thing about resilience is that you get the same sort of narrative you know you just need to be a bit more resilient as if it's something that you can just do to yourself um the fact is that we all have different levels of resilience because of our own personal disposition some of that's biological some psychological some of it's sociological but you just can't actually just suddenly build more resilience and um, so, from a leader perspective, I think there's a little bit of a challenge there. That, that sometimes it gets a bit machuistic, a bit sort of jingoistic. Oh, I'm really resilient, mate. You know, like, you know, let me down the gym, building a bit of resilience. And you're, you're actually, no, it's, you know, two guys can go to war, experience exactly the same thing. One might experience a nervous breakdown. The other one might be absolutely fine with what they've seen. You, you know, n- neither of them were weak, but one of them just had less emotional resilience than the other. And I think the key thing about resilience, in my experience, is everyone has to know themselves to a level where they can actually manage their resilience. So it's like we've got a quota. There's something called Hooke's Law, which many of you in physics will be aware of or remember from GCSE, where if you load a spring, Hooke's Law is the measurement of the point at which the spring no longer returns to its original shape. And uh, we we all require uh, an awareness of the load, which takes us to a place where we, if you like, become out of shape. Uh, and then we have to manage our load according to our resilience but that's quite different to actually being more resilient and um so there's you know I, that, that's a kind of little intro for me for, for resilience is actually saying I've got a quota of resilience I need to manage myself within that quota whereas the language I quite often hear is I just need to be more resilient as if that's something I can do to myself.
0: We were talking last week um about uh Similarly, that, that, that idea of uh, this kind of inner strength that you've got to somehow will yourself to, um, And it's, it's a quite a buzzword. It's been a buzzword for a couple of years, but it feels like it's like on vogue right now because of all that we're facing. And it's almost like people don't really know um, what else, what answer we have to the ongoing change, the challenges of COVID, the economic recession. So what do we need? Oh, we'll get some inner resilience and that will be the answer. And we were reflecting last week that actually the Jesus way is, is not some kind of inner strength, but actually is to inhabit weakness and brokenness in a much more authentic way. And that, it's in that place that we find our strength um, in that. Yeah, I, I, I think that's
1: absolutely right. I think that's the, uh, that's the right approach. Um, you know, it's funny, isn't it? That sort of, there's, there's this sort of the activated gospel, particularly for leaders. It's like in the face of challenge, I need to do something it's like, it's very, it's very egocentric, when actually the gospel is is Christocentric, and actually the whole principle is that we're, you know, we're limping towards Jesus as best as we can, or, you know, God is running towards us, with the prodigal returning, God is leaping out of his home, coming towards us to help us, lift us in, um, but amongst leaders there's still, particularly within Christian circles, there's a sort of strange obsession with fixing it ourselves. I mean, one of the things I think has been a you know, if if they can, if you can find any positives about about this experience at all, one is about one for me. One of the very important positives has been about the disempowerment that it offers uh, offers us, because actually I think the world's been addicted to this idea that we can control everything, and I think the humbling reality of the fact that we actually have to submit to something, um, even if it's something you know, challenging, negative, you know, is evidence that we need God. Uh, you know, I think that. Sort of, Christian leaders can fall into the same trap as leaders in the world around them. This whole idea that we can, you know, we can do it, we can make everything better. God is the source on the side um, of life, rather than being life. You know, we're not created to uh, to build an appetite and eat what we create, and then you know dress it in God. But actually, we're created for an appetite for God to actually consume what He offers us. Mm. Um, and that, that, you know, sort of positioning, I feel like, yeah, part of our exhaustion is about working ourselves out to a place of humility and submission, rather than actually being able to overcome.
0: Yeah, I was, um, I was thinking that um, that whole idea of control is actually quite a modern idea in human history. The idea that we get to control everything, it's, we're talking a matter of decades, not centuries, and yet human existence has been millennia and this idea that only in recent history have we really gotten the idea that we're in control of things. And I, I for those who don't know some of your story, Will, maybe in, in, in a short summary, you entered into this world of mental health and, and equipping the church, not just the church in an in a, in, 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 inward looking way, but outward looking way because of something that was out of your control. Do you want yeah, to share? Absolutely, John. Yeah, that? yeah,
1: I mean, I think, I, I think back to our time at Wycliffe, I was probably quite annoying <laughs> um, because I was sort of <laughs> he, look, he's not denying I it either I <laughs> yeah, was probably I can I realize it's probably quite annoying because I was um, I was so urgent about everything I remember you were pressing into kind of quite experimental and reflective spaces and I was all about like come on let's get on with you know sharing the gospel all very sort of like activated and quite driven uh, you know I'd say to you now honestly you're driven by a huge amount of insecurity and actually I, I recognized that in other leaders in the same way as I recognized it in myself at the time or well, I'd failed to recognize it in myself at the time very driven by achieving driving forward not stopping not reflecting not really coming to terms with my own inner life and um, I spent the first year of my curacy doing that but you know even to another level because you know as soon as you got the collar on it's like you know you just come out the starting blocks and I'm like right I've been sitting around in the theological college for three years talking about this Now I'm going to absolutely kill it. Yeah. You know, forget God, forget Jesus. Will (laughs) Vanderhart's just turned up, and he's going to like bring usher in the kingdom. You know, and I and I I I worked my backside off, and I remember doing. I remember putting together sixteen nights straight of ministry events, which is quite a lot when you think about it. Uh, Not being in for a single night for sixteen nights. I remember saying to my wife Lou, "Oh, we've been going pretty hard, haven't we? You know, sixteen nights. That feels like quite a lot." But we were kind of, high, you know, I was probably high-fiving her in the street. She was thinking, this is not good, this is not good. <laughs> um, and then I got I got caught up in the London bombings, um, the 7-7 bombings of July that year. Um, and, you know, I ended up putting on my dog collar, which was not something I did particularly often. But I basically hosted the um, emergency service response to the HRO road bombing. And I saw a lot of where you work yeah literally i know i just lived literally just four doors down from 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 the st mary's hall which was the was the hall that we hosted the emergency services in and was and was cordoned in you know and did sort of 24 hours on site and you know it, it is a really traumatic experience i saw and heard things that were really distressing what, what was interesting was i can blame if you like my mental health challenge breakdown on that event but I would say to you, that would be an easy thing to hide behind. The reality was I was on the edge before the London bombings. The London bombings were the straw that broke the camel's back. I was living irresponsibly in terms of my mental well-being. And then when that trauma occurred, basically that was it for me. So three months later, I started having panic attacks, you know, terrible anxiety, sleeplessness, loss of appetite, loss of weight, you know, really on edge the whole time, hypersensitive to noise. Um, I didn't know what was going on. I mean, literally, I literally thought I was losing my mind and the church thought I was losing my mind as well, because at the time, 2005, no one was talking about mental health. So, you know, one pastor is telling me the devil's got into me. That's really scary. The other pastor is telling me I just need to sleep a lot. That's pretty confusing. So, you know, we had no psychological model and it was a non-Christian doctor who, frankly, probably wouldn't be seen dead in a church uh you know who's like made that pretty clear to me and my friend who's a consultant psychiatrist who was at Cambridge with who who's Dr Rob Waller who who I run mine and soul with they're the guys who put me back together again but that point I mean that whole year for me was you know repentance taking stock like becoming psychologically well reflecting on the train wreck of my overaction and and you know and then repenting of that and actually then saying well what can we say to the mm. church and how can we help the church? So that was that was the beginning, and that's my my sort of journey in a nutshell. But I think particularly for this conversation around sort of activation and resilience and action, I think it's it's it, it's it's important. I think mean, it's really important for me uh, as a leader to 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 offer that revelation because I'm so you know sometimes you're tempted to hide behind a story, and then people are like, oh poor you, wow that must have be been really tough for you. And you can just get you know you can get the sympathy. When actually i'm just i don't really deserve anyone's sympathy like i needed i needed rebuke before that happened and honestly if you if you gave me a big red button and said well you could press this button and and that would never have happened to you i, w- I would no way press it well wow. i wouldn't i would never erase the experience from my, ex- my from that experience from my experience because honestly if i hadn't had a breakdown in that first year of ministry i'll probably have a catastrophic breakdown in my like 15th year of ministry because the way I was living was just so unsustainable, and the things that were driving me was so ungodly. Yeah, you know, ultimately Jesus said, "I've come to give you life and life in its fullness." You know, come to me, all you are burdened and weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. You know, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. I, you know, I didn't know what any of that meant.
2: Hmm. Well, this is, uh, this is powerful stuff. Um, it's estimated about one in four people experience mental health challenges in the the UK. And last year, we were at a clergy conference for the Kensington area, and Deborah Strain was one of the speakers there. And she said that clergy are 40% more likely than their peers to suffer breakdown. I mean, maybe it's quite evident, but just wonder whether you could speak into that, why that is the case. Uh, I know that not just clergy are going to be listening to this, there'll be other leaders, but maybe specifically to clergy, uh, why that could be the case and what we can do to begin to, you know, put a framework in place to help us.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it's always a bit weirdly paradoxical world because you read these articles in the sort of Telegraph and the Times about the most content employees in the country and clergy nearly always come up as number one, the most sort of satisfied. And I look at that and I'm like, really? I mean, I love being a clergyman, but, but, but I wonder why they say that they're super content. And, and I, I, my feeling is it's because it's that convergence of purpose and calling and identity and actually in in most careers there is you know a, a great sense of fulfillment but but there's a there's this sort of calling aspect which many people can't really relate to but they feel that echo of the other you know I I love being a banker but am I called to be a banker my sister and my brother-in-law and my brother other brother were are all senior medics and, and I guess they they experience a little bit of a sense of calling, like I feel called to help people in this way, but but it's really these sort of professions where you have this sense of call that mixes with the identity and the the profession, the skill, the, you know, that the whole thing becomes quite all-encompassing. And I think, you know, like many things, the the gift and the curse are are cojoined. You know, the shadow and the self, they they're kind of they're both evident, and and when you feel called. There is a level of buy-in, this level of investment that's far greater than I'm just doing my job. I mean, look, for the three of us, if we went out for a beer with another priest and we said, oh, how's it going, Bob? And they said, oh, you know, to be honest, I'm just keeping the wheel spinning at the moment. I'm just happy with my paycheck. I'd just like to, you know, just to, you know, I'm, I'm just in it for the money. You know, what would you think? You'd be like, oh, my goodness, this guy. he's doing the wrong thing but imagine if you're working in a in a I don't know a a garage and you were having a bit of a tough time you know you weren't feeling very fulfilled you said you know to be honest I'm just turning up at work doing a good job getting paid you'd be like yeah great do you want another pint you know the fact is that we 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 measure ourselves against a different standard and that is that you're all in and because of that standard and because that sense of call the call is often greater than the self-care so your investment in the sacrifice you're willing to make are far greater than the sacrifice and the investment that people are necessarily willing to make in other professions and it also used to be that clergy people used to receive remuneration to the level of other professions that was why it was clerical medical legal because lawyers doctors and cler- clerics basically received the same sort of remuneration and support and and that's when clerics largely spent four days a week writing their sermon for Sunday, not being social workers, you know, building project managers, financiers, you know, general social activists, safeguarding officers, local community representatives, you know, hall hosts and hire guys, HR leaders, you know, you name it. Like, if I, if I was going to employ someone, if I was like a big headhunter, I would just, any job, I'd just go basically to a pool of priests and try and hire them pretty much guarantee they could probably do most of the things that need to be done. Um, and, and I'm not blowing smoke here. I'm, I'm honestly, I'm, I'm just like, clergy work seriously hard, but they've often got seriously poor boundaries. Now you go back to that, the greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and love your neighbour as yourself. That's really good until the bit where it's about loving your neighbour as yourself. Because for most clerics, if they really love their neighbours themselves, they probably get a massive axe and start whacking their neighbor because the actual that like the self-love bit is is often missing um and that's the that that's just really hard you can only give away what the father has given you and if you haven't received it how can you give it away you know if you don't if you're not taking care of yourself how can you love others if you don't know what love is Mm. that's a great challenge and unless we deal with the sort of intro punitive hostility that's evident within Christian leadership. We're never gonna lead generously. We're always gonna be activated by actions. Um, and we talk about the love of Jesus, but we often talk about it for other people. But clergy need to just revel in the love of Jesus for themselves. Uh, and I, I find it so hard. I just know if I was the most loved, you know, I love John, right? You know, John's gospel, because he's like, he's basically boasting the whole time about how much love he's got from Jesus. <laughs> It's so annoying. It's like just going around, yeah, I'm like just super loved by Jesus. You know, Jesus really loves me. He loves me. Oh, well, he loves me, That he loves me. I was sing songs about how much he loves me. It's like, John, you just get a grip. You know, it's too much. But, um, but it's good wisdom, isn't it? Because you're like, imagine that. We, imagine we described ourselves as the disciples that Jesus loved. We'd have so much more to give because we've received so much more than we've received that's kind of for me a key part of what it looks like to be sustained in Christian ministry now I
0: was um thinking about when you talked about uh when 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 you have calling um often that will then lead to poor boundaries I certainly know that for my own life speaking quite honestly um and um and I think there'll be many people listening today for whom like when they're driven by something they kind of ride roughshod any, over any boundaries, you know. Oh, it doesn't matter. That that's not. I've got to get this done. And, and there's also part of the calling element, where we 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 inadvertently replace the thing that we're called to do, um, and then believe that we are the answer to the solution, the answer to the problem. That we are, you know, we are we become almost messiah figures in in our calling in working that out. And that kind of led me to think about you know you've written a book on perfectionism and and then guilt and all those things feed into the Christian leader particularly when calling is at the center of it because um because there's perfection the perfectionism of wanting to do the right job do, do it well looking over our shoulder realizing that we're not quite as good as the person to our left or to our right all those things feed in and I just would love to for you to share what your thoughts are around how we as leaders when calling is at the center no matter what we're doing if we're called to be um in in retail or 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 in finance or in law or uh, whatever or indeed in christian ministry how do we how do we balance the calling and the boundaries together
1: yeah that's an, that's an age-old question there's, there's three sort of boundary states <clears throat> so if you like to talk simply about boundaries because the thing about perfectionism that christians secretly believe it's the sin that they that they should commit you know <laughs> so if you're going to apply for a job as a christian you know you you sort of like they say you know what are your weaknesses and you think oh what am i going to put in there because i don't want to, like do myself out of a job so you think oh i know i'll say like i'm a perfectionist. I'm going to work long hours for low pay and get everything right because the employers going to go yes that's what I want you know or, or they, they think are saying I'm a perfectionist is a bit too strong so I'm a bit of a perfectionist as in there's a good bit and like I'm that bit um but you know we secretly are like we polled like people with this uh, when we were writing the book you know how, how many of you think that perfectionism is a sin hardly anyone puts up their hand in fact they point to you know to, to um, be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect in ephesians um and so sort of well, almost the gospels you know the epistles sort of you know they, they support the premise of perfectionism when actually the translation is just rubbish um because i should, shouldn't say per- be perfect it should say be complete therefore as your heavenly father is complete which mm-hmm. is about hiding yourself in christ It'd be an irony wouldn't it if at the end of the um if if at the end of the sermon on the mount jesus said yes, and to have any of this stuff, you have to be perfect, <laughs> uh, you would know, be like, oh, all right, I thought this was for, like, sinners, and, and, like, poor people, you know, people who've, like, you know, who are deficient, oh, no, no, this is just for perfect people, so if you just go and do all this perfect, they'd be great, so, um, you know, M- Matthew, Jesus says, <laughs> he doesn't say, be perfect, therefore, as the heavenly Father is perfect, after he's prayed the Lord prayer, Lord's Prayer, he says, you know, be complete, therefore, in your heavenly father i think the Weymouth edition is a good translation Anyway, well, our
0: culture, I dig- our culture is terrible with this i mean i don't know if you've seen a job description a job advert for a uh someone in christian ministry i mean i don't look actively i'm not looking to move on but when you see them you think that actually what they're looking for we want a new vicar in you know some you know St brides on sea wherever it might be in on you know and and they want a messiah figure you know oh, oh, they must totally be an excellent job. preacher they must be a great administrator they want to bring new families to christ <laughs> teachers, thinking what you want is jesus incarnate in your okay. church
1: I, I did a reference with someone actually recently and 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 the the actual job advert the specifications honestly it made me crazy so i actually wrote a letter of complaint to the church oh, good. about the job spec <laughs> i was like look i what whatever clout i've got I'm going to level it against you on the basis of the fact that this is entirely unhelpful. I was like, you know, I've, I recommended the person that I I, I wrote about. I mean, actually, she subsequently got the job. I was like, you have set this person up. If you honestly believe you're recruiting someone to this sort of standard, honestly, St. Paul would be quaking in his boots if he tried <laughs> to apply for this job. Like, you honestly, Jesus might have even disqualified himself. So i can't you can't go there um but but that's that's the level of you know the, the, like i say this sort of blindedness to what it looks like to be a christian leader so the the, the three states of boundary if we call about the codependence is the first one so codependency is when you're inveigled with other people your identity is never really clear and basically you, you're only alive when you're when you're enmeshed with another person so codependency is a negative boundary state that's basically loose or non existent boundaries. And then on the opposing polarity, you've got independent. Now, we'll like Beyonce Knowles sings about independence like it's something you want. But actually, independence is something that you don't want because humans aren't created for independence. They're actually created for a interdependence. And this is the central piece. So, what we're looking to do is not become independent because actually, that's that's non-porous boundaries, that's like hard boundaries, where we're disconnected from one another. Interdependence is this messy space in the middle between codependency and independence, and interdependence enables a person to know both who they are, as in where they begin and where they end, and where someone else begins and where someone else ends, but enables them to interrelate in a way that they can share love and support and emotion and resource. Um, And that place of interdependence is what we're really looking to achieve. Now, Christian leaders can, again, fall into two of the polarity categories pretty easily, and I'd say on every level. The first one is codependency, and this is when overwhelming and unbounded individuals in in their circles of influence create environments in which they feel like they come alive. So they feel effectively anxious or afraid, so they enmesh with other people, and that enmeshment enables them to feel a greater level of confidence. So, oh, I'm, I'm not on my own anymore. It's not me against the congregation because I've got my church warden, Tony, and he understands me and he understands everything about me. And we write our press releases together because, you know, I do everything with Tony. So that's kind of codependent. And then independence, independence is when you hide in the vicarage and you basically write emails that are sort of diktats And, you know, you keep reminding everyone of your day off and you never answer your phone and and you're sort of like hiding away from the world because it's all too threatening and scary. And interdependence is when we actually work collaboratively and collatively, but we have good boundaries to say no and say yes, enforce, you know, appropriate discipline and also receive appropriate rebuke. So boundary states are really important, but we need a bit more clarity about what it looks like to have healthy boundaries. And, you know, you probably read the classics, Cloud and Townsend. But, but think, the thing about boundary teaching is boundary teaching is a bit of a mute beast. You can't just employ boundary teaching unless you understand yourself. So, you know, if you don't understand what you need, boundary teaching just be, it's like dealing with addiction by just saying to someone don't do it. It's like, well, thanks, but like, how does that work out? You you've got to help someone to understand why they're addiction before you can help someone to understand how they're addiction. And, and with boundaries, you've got to help someone to understand you know, why their need before you can help them understand how they boundary their need. Um, so if you're if you know if you're feeling uh, scared and alone, you, you can understand why you might want to be codependent. If you feel angry and, and, and withdrawn, you can understand why you want to be independent. If you're feeling healthy and connected and but like you belong you can understand why you might be more attuned to be interdependent so you know boundary teaching is good but it's not as good as actually knowing what you want and why you want it and all of this stuff plays into long-term well-being in terms of sustainable ministry you know I I, I, my belief on success now is actually longevity is success sustainability is success I used to think so when I was a Wycliffe John as you know I used to think you know basically, leading thousands of people to Jesus was success. Now I think Jesus is going to lead thousands of people to Jesus, and me having a sustainable ministry in which I still love Jesus and want to serve Jesus, that's success. Yeah. Like, honestly, my bar has got seriously low, partly because I've seen so many leaders blow up, burn out, press the eject button, give up. I'm not going... Wow these people I love and respect I even wrote about Jean Vanier in my last book the Power of Belonging. He's like one of my heroes I can't tell you how I wept when I found out that actually there's this shadow to his ministry and that his you know all the amazing things he did were kind of discredited by this moral failure. I'm like man if these godly good people can screw up like this I am set for the wrecking ball yeah. you know? I yeah. gotta do something different because I am not a saint. I gotta I gotta I gotta look at ministry differently. Because if they if they went bad, I I'm I'm trajectory straight into the car crash. Yeah. So how am I gonna do that? Yeah. I gotta do it differently. I gotta look at success in a different way.
2: This is again just so so pertinent and really powerful, Will. Really freeing. This is a freeing message. Just link to this, and you mentioned interdependence and think about isolation and leadership, loneliness and leadership seems to be a feature for leaders that they experience loneliness and isolation. I I came across the Harvard Business Review, 61% of CEOs experience loneliness. Lauren Brent in a biologist and new scientist, she said that social isolation creates feelings akin to physical pain and leaves us stressed and susceptible to illness. So this is a particular feature for for leaders, Mother Teresa, well-known quote she gave, loneliness is the most terrible poverty. What can we do to help leaders that may be feeling isolated, um, feeling lonely? Why is it they feel that, yeah. and what
1: can we do to help? I mean, it, absolutely, this is such a core and significant question to ask. But again, like perfectionism, like, like the boundaries of, you know, the, like the different boundary states or putting boundary uh, mechanisms in place, loneliness will only be resolved if we understand why we want to be alone. And our assumption is always that we want to be together. So we layer that on when actually we haven't really asked the question. The reality is that yes, loneliness is an absolute killer. Loneliness is physiologically and psychologically damaging. But who's deciding to be alone here? That's the question. Because I, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a coach and I coach people in business and I coach you know, in the business world. And You know, it's amazing to me how I can talk about loneliness and I see CEO's eyes glaze over and go, yeah, loneliness is really bad. What they're actually saying with their eyes is, yeah, loneliness is really bad, but you're never going to get me to hang out with anyone else. Why? Well, because actually inside, I don't really want to. I don't want to be connected. I don't want to be known. You know, shame is the greatest inhibitor to connection. When we wrote The Power of Belonging, it was based on the Baumeister and Lyrius 1995 study that, that, that every human has a minimum level of belongingness value, the minimum need to connect and be you know, in significant, lasting interpersonal relationship. Now, that's, that's what we're designed for. That's what we're built for. And yet, shame is the anti-power that actually says... No, you've got to defend the heart. You've got to be isolated. You can't let anyone really know you because if they really knew, then they would really reject you. You know, um, Darwin, when he he, he defines humans, it's significantly different to other animals based on this premise of shyness or shame. So when a rhinoceros comes out as born, he doesn't get up and see another rhinoceros that's not his mum and go, oh, how embarrassing, and kind of turn his face away. But, but you take a little baby, a human baby. When they're born and then a, a, an, another face, not their mother or father, looks at them, they turn their face away, it's the first thing they do. Hmm. And, it, and it's innate, no one's taught them. But like shame and otherness is part of the human condition. I believe that's original sin. I believe that that shame, that shyness is a sign that something innate within us believes that if it's not familiar, we'll be rejected And so why is isolation such a killer for leaders? Well, I believe that so many leaders are bound by shame. They believe that actually they don't match up. That's often why they work harder than everyone else. That's why they often get into leadership positions, because actually they're escaping something. They they climb the ladder hoping that there's something there. They get there, and actually there's not really anything else there. I've worked with significant business leaders who are saying things like, well, to be honest, I'm just hanging on for retirement, and then I can be myself. I'm like, well, who have you been for the last 30 years? Well, not me. Because actually that would be far too painful I might get rejected. You know, I think again we're in danger. If we talk about loneliness and isolation, we can talk about how bad it is, but until we can help leaders to realize that they actually want to have the opposite of loneliness and isolation, we'll never get in get anywhere. Yeah. And that the fact is, you know, guys, I believe that competition is killing the church. You know, we look at one another on Instagram, people measure each other's churches on how many people are sitting in the pews how many podcasts or interviews or books you've written or whatever it is you're doing. The spirit of competition is killing people. Yeah. And, and that spirit of competition says, actually, you know, you need to compete. You need to put on your game face because that's all you've got because at the heart of you, it's just darkness. Mm. And leaders, Christian leaders, they believe in the gospel for others, but they still don't believe in it for themselves. Yeah, They feel ashamed. They feel other. They feel that actually, if, at best they are one of pause ones sneaking through the flames you know maybe they'll get in the door that's not a way to live then certainly that's not a way to lead yeah. the leaders are terrified they, you know they create ivory castles around their identity and they hope that people will pedestal them and look up to them and verify them and validate them but inside they just believe like what the hell am i doing
0: here yeah you talked um earlier about your experience of um the 77 bombings and how actually it was a straw that broke the camel's back and and actually there were things that were there all the way along, um, even at Wycliffe when, when we shared time together. Um, but but actually what the, that moment on 7th of July of that year uh, did was to, was to actually bring those things to a head uh, in you. And I think uh, for a lot of people, as we began this podcast a few months ago, um, it was in the context of COVID and I think what COVID has done has indeed had a similar impact on many people, is that actually it's brought to the surface things that are always there before, whether that's strategically even, you know, retail is is facing some real crunch decisions right now. But to be honest, most people in that sphere would tell you those things have been coming down the pipeline. It's just accelerated in the last six months. and I would say the same for leaders as well. There are things that we have left undealt with that COVID has created a context that these things are bubbling up. And we were talking last week about uh, competition, interestingly enough, um, and and how it's the how it's actually the enemy of contentment, um, and that you know, in the writer to Hebrew talks about us running our lanes. And keeping our eyes fixed ahead, but our, we, we're always looking to the left and to the right, to the Instagram account to our left and the Twitter account to our right, to the number of people on uh, coming to our church events or services to our right or whatever. That's what our eyes are fixed on rather than what's what's ahead. And I think what that can do, particularly in this COVID context, is we then become deeply anxious, which is, I know, another subject that you've talked about, anxiety and worry. Um, and I And I'd love to, just as we kind of bring things to a close is to end on this subject of worry as we look ahead to an unknown future. Who knows what 2021 is going to look like? None of us do. Yes, there's a potential vaccine around the corner. But the reality is, as leaders, we're encouraged to be future focused. And we've got a future that is as yet undefined, out of our control. And that, for many of us, causes anxiety, worry, stress. What would you say to those of us leaders wherever we find ourselves but people who consider ourselves followers of Jesus whether inside the church ministry or not to help navigate the future without carrying the burden of worry and anxiety
1: sure i mean that's such an important question there's time john and i think for me again it goes back into the control narrative so <clears throat> if you think about um, a farmer in in norfolk you know 200 years ago like he, you he, he say, Oh, and how's it going with your farming this week? Farming, so yeah, it's going pretty well, thanks. Um, you know, any problems? Well, not really. I mean, I could do with a bit of rain. he said, Well, you know, do you think any rain is coming? Well, you lick his finger, stick it in the air, and go, mm, I don't think so today. Um, but well, I can tell you right now what the temperature is on the North Pole. Fact is, I didn't used to have any information to my disposal, so I used to be able to do Matthew six thirty four because. I could only care for the issues of today. Today has enough troubles of its own. I can only deal with the troubles of, the, of, of, of today because that's all the information I have at my disposal. Whereas, actually, Matthew 6, 34 has gotten more important to us because Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Today has enough troubles of its own. Now, go back 200 years and actually didn't really know what the troubles of tomorrow were. I mean, you could worry that your crops aren't going to get any rain, which is problematic, but you probably worked out that that's not really going to help you. Plus, you'd always live in hope that actually tomorrow might bring rain and therefore your hope kind of cancels out your tendency towards leaning towards being catastrophizing the future becoming catastrophic. So our access to information in the 21st century supercharges our relationship with anxiety because it drives us towards the first half of what Jesus was teaching about, and that is the problems of tomorrow so we knew about the virus coronavirus in early december yeah because that was going on in china we had four months to worry about coronavirus before it started making people sick in our own country i remember i was in switzerland doing a a chaplaincy and um i remember walking around you know having done a church service and having a sort of nice walk in the snow thinking oh i wonder whether or not this virus is going to come to europe I I literally remember that and remember praying about that and actually that took seed for me and i started really worrying about that now the fact is my access to information supercharges my tendency towards anxiety and we love information because ultimately humans are problem solvers and leaders are particularly built to be problem solvers and so we get the information and then we begin the process of worrying about the information we've received. And then we begin the activity of problem solving, which helps us to feel like we're resolving the problem, which of course we cannot resolve because you cannot fix the problems of tomorrow with the grace of today. You know, The, the invitation that we have is to stay in the present moment. The leader's responsibility is to try and mitigate the impacts of problems in the future. I'm, I'm coaching someone in risk management at the moment who struggles with anxiety i'm thinking this is a really difficult person to coach because their superpower is managing the risks of the future which haven't happened yet and their superpower is killing them now how do i how do i not disable their ability to be an excellent risk manager but also help them to get free from their anxiety what we have to do is become better at mitigating our own activity and asking ourselves whether the problem that we're really trying to solve is a problem that we can attend to And that's why we have to label our anxieties. So we we describe there's two sorts of worry in the world. There's solvable worry. That's worry that you can actually apply problem-solving techniques to. So if I told you you're going to lose your job in a month, you'd do well to actually begin to work on your CV, go to a jobs club, start looking for another job, you know, talk to your mortgage broker, try and get a reprieve on any bills that you've got outstanding, you know, begin the process of working out what that looks like. But for most people... The worries that really keep them awake at night are what we call floating worries. So these are things like, have I got any real friends? Or have you tried solving that problem? Like, imagine what it looks like as a Christian to go around going, are you really my friend? It's not like anyone's going to say, no, I've been faking it for years. You know, like, you can't resolve problems like that. Like, am I going to get sick? I don't know. Like, uh, who knows? Like, what do you do? Go to the doctor and say, am I going to get sick? Or say, look, I can diagnose any symptoms, but you haven't got any symptoms. So I can't tell you that, I can't answer those questions. The problem we carry is that our mechanism for solving problems gets supercharged by our awareness of the information that's available to us in the world around us at the moment, and also our belief that we're in control of the lives that we're actually living. If we went back a thousand years, you could be really happily farming with your family on the Northumbria coast, 20 minutes later massive viking runs into your garden grabs your wife literally stamps on your carrots and then runs away again that's it never see her again never see him again got no carrots to eat you know it it's a nightmare And whilst it is a nightmare and it's horrible to think about you didn't have a long time to actually worry about it happening before it happened whereas now if there were vikings you'd be able to track them on a gps Maybe sailing for weeks across the North Sea, which would be terrifying, especially when you knew that they were coming to your particular garden. So we've got to stay present minded. And once we have an eye on the future, that's the future that God has in his hands. And we've got to let go of control and begin to live each each day of our lives with grace and gratitude. And that is a real difficult mission. I have an anxiety disorder, so I have to battle to make that real for me. But we ultimately have to decide what we're going to do and we have to try and do that thing. But giving way to worry, giving way to our inflated sense of belief that we control the future, it's not the great place to start that journey.
2: Well, this is this is brilliant. And we've looked at isolation, worry, anxiety, competition, even uh, protecting our carrots and uh, I just wondered, sort of final question as we come into land, how are you going to be approaching 2021 as a leader? Done a lot. You're an expert in this area. Um, just to give us an insight so that we might be able to reflect ourselves on, on how you might be approaching after the year that we've all had and as you're embarking on the next year, what things are you thinking about? What sort of framework are you approaching it with?
1: Thanks, Matt. I think that's a really insightful question. And it's something that... Um... So I've made a few decisions during lockdown um, and one of the decisions I made was to stop being ambitious. So, you know, I think the scripture says without vision the people die and I've realised that there's something that is called godly vision and there's something called personal ambition and, and I want to exchange personal ambition for godly vision. So I want to try and um, stop being a, a sort of being attracted to the sparkly things so I'd say, like, if you showed me a new opportunity that looks sparkly and fun, I'd say yes before I'd even thought it through. You know, I, I, I have, like, a tendency to, like, like new things. I like new opportunities. I like new kind of moments. And that really, that lifts me. You know, I, I think, oh, wow, that's really fun or that's really interesting. But I, I want to just hold on. I want to pause and ask bigger questions about vision. Like, what God, what's God want me to do? versus what does ambition want me to do i've talked a lot in the past um, about shadow mission you know true mission and shadow mission and um, i think you know some really great teaching out there around this subject and there's some of it's freudian psychology as well but you know the idea is that we have a true mission that's what god's called us to and then we have a shadow mission and that's what we do when we don't really want to do what god calls us to but our shadow mission is only over five degrees away from our true mission so they kind of look passable you know, it looks like I'm doing the thing I'm called to do, but I'm normally doing it for slightly different intentions. I really want to kill my shadow mission. I really want to be like, okay, I don't want to get diverted all the time to do things that are effectively egocentric. I want to get diverted into the things that are Christocentric. I want to try less hard. Why am I such a try-hard, John? I don't know. Honestly, <laughs> I I don't know. I wish I, I, wish I wasn't such a try-hard. I just wish I was sort of a bit more relaxed. And I think... <laughs> um sometimes I just think why am I worrying about this I know it's like anxiety again I'm like why am I worrying about this why am I such a try hard I want to be more natural and just straight up I want to care less about what other people think about me Mm. and I want to care less about whether or not you know I'm like doing it right in terms of like other people approving. I want to be honorable and holy but I don't want to just please people or just everyone's like, oh will van duart's such a nice guy like they ever said that but you know what i mean i guess there's some of the things i just want to do and I, I want to be a good dad and i just think oh man i've been a crap dad at times just putting ministry first not really like gunning at home to show my kids that i'm really there for them you know i do it in most but i'm too sporadic i want to be more intentional i want them to be like I don't don't want them to have to go into ministry therapy because they're like, they're 25 and they're like, my dad was a priest. And I don't want the therapist to go, oh yeah, oh poor you. I I want them to like go, I don't need therapy actually, because my dad like listened to me and stuff and like we talked stuff through. Um, And I want to be a good husband because like in this world, mates' marriages are coming apart and I just want my my wife to feel like I love her as much as anything else in the world, if not more, you know, and that's really important to me. Um, so it's pretty basic, if I'm honest. Love my wife well. Love my kids well. Be really honest. Try and be myself more. Try and have less ambition. Try and do more of the things that I think God actually wants me to do. That's my general plan for for now, really, as much as for 2021.
0: So great, Will. So great. And the real challenge. I want to write a manifesto like that for my life. At least, you know, that sounds such a man i want that i want that in in life and ministry and to get the focus right and this whole episode has been a good recalibration at least a journey for us and um, particularly um maybe for those of us listening as well and and if you want to follow up on any of that stuff uh will uh will's uh mind and soul foundation that uh, he leads alongside dr rob waller uh, is www.mindandsoulfoundation.org so do check out that website And of course, there's four books that we've referred to uh, every so often throughout this episode. The Worry Book, The Guilt Book, The Perfection Book, and the most recent, The Power of Belonging. So if you want to follow up with uh, any of the stuff that Will has just dipped into with us today, uh, then pick up those resources. We're so grateful, Will, for your time with us uh, today. And hopefully for many of us, that has begun a conversation uh, that will last certainly well into 2021, if not the rest of our lives.
1: Oh, thanks, guys. So fun. Really fun doing that with you. Really appreciate it.
0: Thanks, guys. If you found this beneficial today, then can we encourage you to share this episode and maybe others as well with your friends and those on your leadership teams? Uh, We would love for this to be a resource for many other people. Just click the share button on whatever app you use or indeed on Spotify as well and uh, share that with those that you think would find this helpful
2: please do leave a review or comment let us know if there's anything you'd like us to look at as well in any of these episodes but the more that you engage the more that we have conversations the more that these episodes get out there and accessible to others so yeah really good john thanks so much for today it's been great cheers matt lots to think about see you soon take care